we'll say welcome to the people on Zoom. There's one person to admit that I will do in a moment. Um, but before I pass to Phil, we are just going to pray for Phil. Ask us all to, to pray for Phil now. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for, for who you are and for what you've done for us. We just prayed, Lord, restore to us the joy of our salvation today as we remember um, what you've done for us and what it means for us today. Lord, restore it to us. And pray that, that, um, that this would really land in our hearts, Father, and that we would be able to apply it to our lives. Lord, what it means to be a Christian is not to understand concepts and be able to and hold all these big ideas necessarily but it's to it's to live with you come and be amongst us we pray amen thank you phil thank you christy and i'm probably gonna have to quibble slightly with the idea that i'm gonna do a better job than roger ellis i'm gonna do a different job to Roger Ellis. I just love sitting at the feet of people who have spent a long time really studying God's word and just grappling with it academically. And I'm, although I've done that on a kind of amateur basis, I'm not really one of those people. And I just love being with people like Roger. You know, it was clear that what he just said was, it almost blew your brain and he was on about 20%, you know. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, it's going to be a, bit, a little bit different, I guess. And the subject, as Christy said, is um, salvation. So we're thinking about being saved, what it means to be saved, how are we saved, when are we saved, what are we saved from, what are we saved to. Um, the word I've been given is soteriology. Um, I admit it's not a word I've ever regularly used, and I'm not about to start using it now. Um, all it is is that all these different sort of disciplines within theology or areas of study within theology they all have their own term that's given to them by the academics and it's based on the greek word for salvation so it's just the study of salvation but like i said you, you don't need to know the posh words in fact jesus tended to have his most run-ins with the people who were most keen on using the big words so you know we're not all about to start learning a load of big words and using them in fact what the world perhaps needs is the reverse of that it needs it explained through simple terms and through lives that illustrate it without words. But nonetheless, we're going to be looking at some of the theology of salvation and what it means to be saved. Now, I don't know what you think when someone mentions being saved or getting saved or are you saved or questions like that. Um, there's loads of things that springs to mind. There's loads of kind of terminology that springs to mind. And um, the, the place I first went to, I must admit, was Bob Dylan. So take it away, Bob. I have been touched by his word I have been healed by his hand I've been delivered by his spirit I've been sealed I've been saved So, I mean, that's probably got half of what I'm going to say today, just kind of strung together the way only a true lyrical genius can. Um, but some of the things you'll have heard in there, they're all ideas that we associate with the concept of salvation or being saved, aren't they? Um, 
It's always good to start with what does the Bible say? And it's sometimes helpful to start with what does the Bible say in its original languages? Not because we want to sound all snooty and say, oh, I think you'll find that in the original Hebrew, it actually says this. Um, But because often we've had to find the best English word to represent a concept that actually there's only a partial overlap with what it means in Greek or in Hebrew. So when you see the word love in the Bible, it always says love in English. But actually, we know that love is not love. It's not all one thing. Um, You know, I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my country. I love my dog. I love chocolate. These are all very different loves. Um, The one English word struggles to cover the breadth of that. Um, When you see the word word... Um, in the New Testament, it can mean two very different things. It can mean the eternal, unchanging word of God or the living right now, active by the spirit word of God. We've only got one word for word. So it is sometimes a good idea not to sort of replace it and mean you're able to quote bits of it, just to go back and understand the depths, the richness, perhaps the different emphasis of what it says in the original languages. So the idea of being saved goes right throughout the whole of the Bible, almost beginning to end. And in the Old Testament, which was written mostly in Hebrew, the word is yosha, which means to be delivered by God into safety. And it's used loads of times. So when Israel get delivered from the enemies, they are being yosha, they are being saved. Um, When David gets delivered out of troubles, he is being saved. When people are delivered out of sickness, they are being saved. When, when the people of Israel have turned away from God and go into sin and into idolatry and worshipping other gods, when they get drawn back to that, the Bible says they are being saved from those things. And perhaps the, the biggest, most complete picture of all is that when the people of Israel come out of slavery in Egypt and they are taken out of that situation of oppression and injustice and into the place that God has promised for them, the Bible says that they are saved from slavery in Egypt. And then we come forward into the New Testament, which was written mostly in Greek. And there's this word sozo, which means to deliver, to heal, to make whole, to preserve, to save. It's quite a rich word in in New Testament Greek. And it's used when Jesus calms the storm, So it's used of very physical trouble and peril. And Jesus saves, sozo, the disciples from the storm. Um, It's used when Jesus heals the sick on multiple occasions. You know, the word used is not necessarily the word that might represent a physical cure, like we might think being healed meant. They are saved from their sickness or their disease or the illness that they're in. And when Jesus forgives sinner, um, when, when Jesus... Uh, called Zacchaeus, the tax collector, to him. And he, you know, Zacchaeus says, you know, I repent of all that I've done. I'll give back all that I've stolen. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. He uses the same word to be saved from sin, same, same from the consequences of his own life. So being saved is this really rich, rich word. And you can see the echoes of it all the way through. Um, I'm going, to get, I'm going to break you into little discussion groups quite a few times, so you might as well join in because you're going to be asked to do this several times. Um, four, you know, probably three or four groups, maybe a couple, two groups on each side of the, 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 the sort of the room would probably work. So first question, we're only going to spend a couple of minutes doing this, and you can use some of the, the words that we've just looked at as clues. 
Um, when we think about being saved as Christians, um, what are we being saved from and what are we being saved to? What do you feel saved from and what do you feel saved to? What do you want to be saved from and what do you want to be saved into? So if you break into three or four groups, just discuss that for a couple of minutes and then I'll get you to shout out some of the stuff you've come up with. <laughs> Right, just um, we're going to wind it up there. If you can just call out from each group one or two things that um, jumped out. So we'll start with this group at the front here on my left. One or two things that you came up in your discussion. Back, say from death to life. Right, how about this group at the back here? From no hope to hope and from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And last group at the front here. To a purpose. Wow, I love that one. Identity crisis to identity found. Save from alone into family, yep. Brilliant. So save from what and save to what? I think these are some real keys to understanding what we mean by salvation and hopefully to letting that concept just expand our own faith and expand our own understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Um, there's no right or wrong in any of these. I'm just using them to get you thinking about it before you hear my take on it, and that may broaden my understanding too. I heard this one in one of the groups. I know we didn't have time to say everything. But certainly, we are saved from the consequences of sin. And we're going to dig into each of these in a minute. But we're saved from the consequences of sin, which put bluntly is death, into eternal life. But we're also saved from the power of sin over our lives. Subtly different thing. Consequences speaks of penalty. You know, what happens because of sin but actually, we're also saved from the power of sin, and we're saved to freedom in Christ, freedom from not just the consequences of sin, but freedom from the power of sin over our lives. We're saved from the effects of sin. I'm talking about specifically the effects of our own sin, the things that we do wrong, the things that make us less than the people God made us to be, and the things that you know are against God's will for us. And I suppose that means being saved to the restoration of our lives, to the fullness of who God made us to be. And we're saved from the effects of original sin. That's a slightly technical concept. But what it means is that the world we live in is damaged by sin more than just our own lives. And that actually when the first human beings, Adam and Eve, sinned against God, that allowed a whole load of bad stuff into the world. And we are still living with the consequences of that, even to this day. And that a lot of the, the brokenness that we see in the world around us, it's not my fault or your fault, although we may add to it, but actually it's the consequence of the collective sin of humanity that comes right the way down. So it's not just individual, it's not all about me. Actually, there is a collective dimension to this. And there is a, an inherited dimension to this almost as well. And when that brokenness of the world is, is saved, that would mean the restoration not just of my life, but of things that go way beyond my life into the corporate and into the whole of creation. We'll come back to that. Um, so when the Bible talks about salvation in the New Testament, it is normally talking about salvation from sin. But there's an incredible breadth of what it means by that. So let's look at some of those. We're saved from the consequences of sin. And I've put a key verse into each of these just to get us thinking. So Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, 
but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's a concept right there that actually when we sin, when we do things that we know are wrong, when we do things that are wrong in God's sight, God is perfect and is holy and is righteous and is just. And when justice sees things done that are against the rule of justice, there is always a penalty associated with that. Otherwise, the accusation would be, God, you are not just because you, you, you just let people who do wrong stuff get away with it and there's no consequences. And there's something in us knows that's wrong, isn't it? But the trouble is, as soon as we feel that, people shouldn't just get away with the bad stuff that they do. This big nasty mirror appears right in front of us and we realise that applies to us as well. So we kind of know that this verse applies to us deep down. I'm not righteous in the sight of God either and the wages of my sin would be death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you've got this idea of salvation that without the work of God's salvation, we would just be lost. And at the end of our lives, we would be judged, we would be found guilty for all the stuff that we've done and not done. And it would be impossible for us to have a place in eternal life where there is no unrighteousness, where there is no sin, where there is no wrongdoing. There's no way we can pay that penalty. We're just not good enough. And so the idea of salvation as the consequences of sin being dealt with is the idea of the cross as the place where Jesus comes as the perfect sacrifice and pays the price for our sin once and for all time. What we cannot do, we cannot make ourselves righteous before God Jesus can do through his sacrificial death on the cross. And what does it mean, paid the price? So it's a really broad concept. And actually the church down the centuries has struggled to find different pictures as to what this might really mean. So we start with the Old Testament picture. You've got the idea that in the Old Testament, in the temple, the Jewish people, would, the priests would bring sacrifices day after day. And the idea was that you'd bring sacrifices as sin offerings as a way of kind of putting right with God all the wrong things that the nation had done. And so we have this picture of Jesus as the Lamb of God. The sacrifices were often lambs. And Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, like John the Baptist said, um, is this image that animal sacrifices have to happen time and time and time again because they never truly deal with it. God just kind of accepts them. But Jesus as the perfect man without sin who never did anything wrong his sacrifice is enough to pay the price of every sin, of every person, once and for all time. You've got this picture of the courtroom. So we are judged in the light of God's perfection and we are found guilty. We all know that. And in a court, you have guilt is established and then you move on to sentencing, don't you? You might have to pay a fine or you might have to go to jail. In a lot of jurisdictions down history, there's been the death penalty. And that is what we would be all due. And there's no way we can pay the fine. There's no way we can pay off the, the sentence. But Jesus, through the sacrifice of a perfect life on the cross, is able to pay off the fine that we receive in the courtroom of God's justice. And then you have the picture that comes from sort of a first century slavery, where people could be sold into slavery, they could be ransomed out of slavery, which means that if the money that was received for their you know, it was almost like a form of 
sort of long-term zero-hours contract, I guess. You kind of bought into it for life. Um, and actually, you could be bought out of it as well. And that was literally called ransoming somebody, buying their life back, buying their freedom back. It was hard to do that yourself because you couldn't earn any money. You owed your wages to your boss. But somebody else could do it for you. And that's, again, the picture. We can't buy ourselves out of the situation we've got where kind of sin's got the upper hand and we just keep doing wrong stuff that we don't really want to do and we don't know how to stop. But Jesus is able to pay the ransom through, the, through if you like, almost the righteousness earned by his death on the cross um, in order to get us out of that situation. Um, there's the picture of almost like a, a feudal lord who you offend and you know this idea of knights going on quests to pay back for their wrongdoing. Um, we don't have the power to do that, but Jesus' perfect life and perfect death satisfies God, our Lord, on, um, not just on Jesus' behalf, but on our behalf. These are all pictures that the church has used down the years and they've all got technical names. Um, but ultimately, this, this all points to the same thing. It's the idea that salvation is about paying the price for our sin and it's about enabling us, therefore, when we die or when Jesus returns, whichever comes first, to enter eternal life rather than being judged and experiencing eternal death. Eternal death. The only way we can have a place in God's future kingdom is through Jesus paying the price for all the wrong that we have done. So being saved from the consequences of sin Wages are what you deserve. You've earned them. And the Bible is really blunt. What we've deserved, what we've earned by our actions, the wages of sin, is death. A gift is what you don't deserve. You're given it whether you deserve it or not. And the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So do you want your just desserts? No, thank you. I would rather have the free gift. Thank you very much. So that's an incredibly important picture of salvation. But it's not the only picture. You've also got this idea that we are saved not just from the consequences of sin, but from the power of sin. Have you ever read that passage where Paul is agonizing about sin? And he's going, I know what I ought to do, but the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. And the things that I do want to do, which I know what I ought to do, that's what I don't do. And when I feel that I'm about to do what I do, then what I don't do springs to life and I don't do what I do and I do do what I don't do and it's all a bunch of do-do basically. Um, that's, that's kind of where Paul ends up. And we all have this sense or we've all known in our lives this sense of struggling with the power of sin. And when looked at that day-to-day -day struggle, all this stuff of the eternal consequences of sin sounds really important, but it's a bit distant, isn't it? This is right up close and in your face. So here's a key verse, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, and this is Jesus on the cross, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And the picture there is of the Roman legions kind of conquering somebody and almost displaying their prisoners as the spoils of war. And what it says, powers and authorities, basically means demonic powers and authorities. It means the forces of evil in this world, and evil is not just a philosophical concept. This portrays the picture of evil as an force actively seeking to pull us down and destroy us and it says that Jesus has has disarmed the powers of evil has disarmed the authority of evil over our lives and made a public spectacle over them triumphing over them by the cross and that means that the power that Paul describes and whether you think he's talking about his life before being a Christian or after being a Christian or both 
is a whole nother subject. But nonetheless, he's talking about the experience of being a human being and sensing that there's something more than just my own choices here. I'm under, I'm under active oppression. I'm under active power. You know, there's a huge difference between um, living in freedom and living under a, a police state where every observer and every informer is watching you and trying to catch you out. And that's what it's like living under the powers and authorities of evil. Um, you know, that oppression, that watching, that accusing is there just the whole time, just waiting to get you. And in, in this view of what, what we are saved from, we're saved from the power of sin and the cross and the empty tomb, Jesus' death and his resurrection, prove that the power of sin is broken in our lives. Jesus has won victory over the power of sin over us and over the spiritual powers and authorities who exercise their authority through it over us. And that means that we are saved to freedom. We can live a new life. And if previously we felt just as Paul was agonizing in that Bible passage, you know, the stuff I really want to do, that's what I don't do. And the stuff that I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing the whole flipping time. We are saved from that power. And we are saved to live a new life, free from the power of sin to tempt us and to corrupt us. Hallelujah. And yeah, what an incredible freedom. Freedom from that power. Freedom to live free of temptation and corruption. But actually, some of the damage has already happened. There's things in our lives that this, the subtle effect of sin as it works through has already damaged me. It's damaged my character. It's damaged my relationships. It's damaged my self-esteem. It's damaged my image of myself, of there's this group. It's damaged my image of God and of the people around me. Um, you know, this whole thing of Jesus and the coin and do you pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus said, forget taxes, what matters is image. Whose image do you bear? That's what he asks about that coin, and he's talking about our lives. And that damage has worked its way right the way through. And even if being saved from the power of sin means the damage stops happening, we'll get onto is even that true in a minute, um, we'd be like the wounded warriors, wouldn't we? Um, you know, limping along, bleeding from previous wounds, our minds and our image already scarred to the point where we struggle to function as human beings. So what happens about that? And this verse in Philippians, it says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that, that doesn't mean being scared, by the way. It's just slightly old language. To being, it's, it, fearing God is recognizing God's awesomeness. And the trembling is like, if you really are standing in the presence of one as awesome and mighty and that, you're going to be a bit like this. That's like just a physiological sign of the awesome presence of God amongst us. And you may have seen it in church, people trembling. You may have seen it when someone stands in front of the boss, I don't know. Um, yeah, but it's not like be scared of God, okay? It's God-fearing means recognizing God's awesomeness. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. In other words, just as sin used to act within you, now God can start to act within you to fulfill not evil purposes, but to fulfill righteous purposes, to fulfill his purposes 
in your life. And we're kind of moving forward from the cross now, aren't we? This is the resurrection power of Jesus. This is the empty tomb. This is the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and fills Jesus' followers for the first time. And he has filled his followers with the Spirit in every generation since. And these are the places where God starts restoring our lives to his original design and purpose and starts to heal the wounds of the past. The things that are broken start to be made whole again by the power of God's spirit living within us. God starts to restore relationships, restore image, restore brokenness, restore trust, to heal, to to put back together again. And in this picture of being saved from the effects of personal sin, salvation is about God gradually transforming us to become the people that he first made us to be. When God created you, he created you perfect and he created you with a purpose and he created you in a specific vision of the way that you would reflect his glory and his beauty and his awesomeness and his amazingness, the way in which you would be a unique gift to the world that nobody else could quite replicate because God's made, I don't know, a couple of dozen billion people since since the beginning of creation. No two of them are exactly the same as far as we know. Every one of us is a unique refraction, like a a fractal or a piece of a jigsaw puzzle that somehow reveals even more and more of the beauty and love and life of God to the world. But sin mars that, sin breaks that, sin confuses that, sin hides that. And this process of being saved from the effects of sin is about being transformed change from glory to glory, working out salvation as a daily journey to to bring us to that beautiful image that God created us to be. And it goes even wider than just us. This verse is incredible when you think about it. It says this, we know that the whole of creation, not even just people, not even just society, the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that means people who have been saved by Jesus, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So what this is saying is there's more. There's more to come. And actually, it's not just us who long for it. I want God to work salvation more in my life. I want that journey of being more beautifully made in God's image yesterday, today than yesterday, and tomorrow than today. But this is talking about something even bigger than that. This is saying that process of transformation and of restoration applies not just to my life and not just to your life. It applies to the whole of humanity, collectively as well as individually, and it applies to the whole of creation. So ultimately, all sin, all sickness, all pain, all poverty, all injustice, all death itself will be dealt with, will be transformed from death into life by the power of God working out salvation in the whole of creation. And yeah, there is a sense that actually this doesn't finally happen until the return of Jesus. This doesn't finally happen until our own death and resurrection in Jesus' image when we are raised to new life. This doesn't finally happen ultimately until that act of recreation where God creates a new heavens and a new earth. And, you know, I don't think any of us know quite how much upcycling is involved in that and whether that is sweep it all away and build a new one or whether that is somehow take the ingredients of the old and use them to build the beautiful new thing that it was always intended to be. And I see hints of both, I think, in in the New Testament accounts and not enough to be sure on either. But um, 
Nonetheless, there is a process of transformation afoot. And all the things that we see wrong around us, the brokenness of the world, the injustice of the world, the sickness that we see, the disease that we see, the, you know, the, the mental illness that we see, the physical illness that we see, the injustice, the broken relationships, the war, the conflict, all these things, the, you know, the, the groaning of creation itself, the sort of the way in which the planet itself seems to be crying out saying, this is bad, I'm hurting here. God is going to create, is going to recreate all of those things new and ultimately when sin is gone everything has been saved and that's the end journey of salvation so we've gone right from what god what jesus did what god did on the cross to the end of the return of all things and you can see salvation is not one point in that salvation is woven through the whole of that story from beginning to end and even before Jesus it's woven through the Old Testament story as well so salvation is arguably it's the ark it's the concept of the whole of the God story of all that God is doing amongst humanity so if that's the case I've got another question for you if you get back into your little groups for a second um, when are we saved when does this thing happen and you might want to answer that from your own life and experience. When do I feel that I was saved, if that's been your experience? Or you might want to answer it more theoretically, perhaps again, based on your own experience. When do I think people are saved? When does this thing happen? But I'd just like some thoughts on the when. You've got a couple of minutes. Okay, let's bring this back together. So we're going to start with the group at the back on that side this time. Any thoughts from your perspective? So when you acknowledge Jesus as Lord in your heart, that is the key moment. Anything else from that group or is that, we're going with that one. Okay, next group at the back here then. You can agree with them if you like. Okay, a couple of really good points there. So confess with your mouth and believe in your heart building on what the first group said. There's a thing of belief within and confession without. And then we got into the whole question of, is that the end of it or can you lose it? Can you continue in it? All, all really good questions. How about the next group? Right, so there is a moment when you first believe, we recognize, but there's also a process and there's a journey and you have been saved and you are being saved and you will be saved was the insight from there. And how about the last group? So... What we're saying there is for some people, there is a very clearly defined moment where they probably literally bow the knee before Jesus. And that is very clearly a moment of salvation for them. For others, there's a long journey and a process and there might be one moment or several moments that they can identify as key milestones in that. But perhaps to them, the accumulated journey means more collectively than any of the individual moments do. Yeah, interesting. So I've got a couple of thoughts based on the when question. Um, we'll run through them from the earliest to latest. So um, 14 billion BC. Um, you, you may have all, you can all have different opinions on the age of God's creation, and that's totally fine. Um, I chose that date because as far as I can tell, there is no opinion that believes it's earlier than that, based on what we know. So therefore, that date is definitely before creation, no matter what you individually believe. Um, so God doesn't make accidents, and God knows the past, the present, and the future. Therefore, God created the whole of his creation, the whole of the universe, knowing that 
um, humanity would come because it was all part of his plan, knowing that we would rebel against him because he'd chosen to create that potential within us, knowing that he would sacrificially give of himself. It's all God's plan. So actually God knew this even before creating the universe. So actually salvation was fixed and set and could not be changed before the start of the universe. That's, that's one way of looking at it. And then what about the cross? 30 AD, give or take. Um, surely Jesus, when he dies on the cross, he says, it is finished. It's done. Salvation was no longer in doubt at that point. Therefore, there is nothing more that has been contributed to your salvation after 30 AD. So surely that's when it happened, isn't it? Um, for me, 1977. That's what a lot of the groups talked about. Uh, that's a, that was the best internet picture I could find that looks roughly like 10-year-old Philip. I could have tried to look one up, <laughs> but I didn't have a picture of me praying. Um, at a youth event at Bar Hill Methodist Church in 1977, I made a decision that meant something to 10-year-old me to give my life to Jesus. And actually, just as I think this group were talking about, there was a journey both before and after that. Um, it'd be hard to identify how massively away from Jesus I was as a 10-year-old. But nonetheless, that decision meant something to me. And subsequent decisions meant something to me too. But if I had to identify the moment I gave my life to Jesus, that'd be it. But what about yesterday and today and tomorrow? God has been working out salvation in my life over the past week. We um, won't go into a long story, but Lisa and I, one of the things we're doing is trying to do some kind of retreat as a spiritual discipline each month this year. And we went up to the prayer room at Dry Street for you know, most of a day uh, last week. And God did some stuff and God spoke to us and maybe change some things. And maybe by that picture of salvation we were talking about, he worked out more of salvation within me. So there was an increment of salvation in my life this week, and probably in some of my conversations and some of the other things I'm doing. And maybe God's changed some of my thinking even on re-looking at this. So maybe I'm being saved right now. And of course, when Jesus returned, do you know how hard it is to find a decent graphic on the internet of Jesus' return? <laughs> It seems like there is this wonderfully diverse set of imagery for almost everything that happens. And the moment you, you Google Jesus' return, all you can find is blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white guy descending on clouds. That is the only... I mean, come on, rest of church. Can we have a bit more artistic expression, please? Let's have a bit... So that, that's Christ the Redeemer, I think, the statue in Rio. And they've managed to catch it on a day where it was clouds right up to the top of the mountain. So you've got Jesus returning on the clouds. I kind of like that one. And there wasn't a great choice. Um, but... Actually, my life, the process of transformation isn't finished yet. My community, my church, my friends, my family, my world, politics and media and social media and the internet and the environment and creation itself. As far as I can tell, looking around, they're not all fully saved yet. In fact, some of them hardly look saved at all. So there's work still to do and it's not going to be finished until Jesus returns. So actually, is anything saved yet? All really good questions. When are we saved? There is, these are all truths, all right? These are all truths in God's word. And these are all things that have been quite controversial and quite heavily contested within different branches of Christian thinking at different areas of history. And my challenge to you is, rather than looking at all the truths and trying to decide which one I like best, and sort of finding ways of rubbishing all the others, 
Let's see if we can start learning from all of these, recognizing that Jesus is the truth. He is capable of containing all truth, all at the same time. And he is bigger than any one human expression of truth is ever going to manage to nail him down to. So there are things that are not true, less true, more true, and flipping really true. But the idea that we can nail God neatly down to one little bit of truth and exclude all the rest, I think means we have a massively undersized concept of God if we try to do that. So let's start with the truth that we were saved at the cross and the truth that the cross itself, the fact that God would have to give himself sacrificially for the redemption of his creation is something that was decided even before the universe was created, even before God breathed the breath of life into the first human being and even before Jesus was born and died and was raised again and ascended into glory. So this emphasizes God's sovereign choice. So there's this word election, which means that you are saved because God chose to save you. It wasn't your decision, really. God chose to offer salvation to you. God chose to save you. And God has complete foreknowledge. So any choice that you made, he already knew what it was and when you would make it. And even knowing that you'd be a bit late to the party, he still chose to die for you anyway. So this view emphasizes God's sovereign choice and it emphasizes Jesus's finished work on the cross. When Jesus died, the Bible clearly said he died once for every human being. If every one of those dozen or 14 or whatever the number is, billion people who have ever lived and will ever live, the salvation that Jesus has bought is enough for all of them. The work is not incomplete. God doesn't run out of salvation. Jesus didn't kind of buy enough salvation for some, but not for all. So it is done. It is finished. And the key truth in all of that is that salvation is God's initiative. Thank God. Otherwise, I'd have had to do it myself. And that could have been pretty tricky. And it doesn't depend on us. So that is a fantastic truth. And when I think I'm not good enough, when I think I'm doing a rubbish job of working out my salvation with fear and trembling, and I flipping should be fearing and trembling because I'm useless at it and I've sinned yet again, and all these kind of things, this reminds me that salvation is God's decision, it's God's initiative, it's God's purpose, it's God's grace, it's God's love. It does not depend on me. But that in itself raises some questions, doesn't it? So, Let's go for some of the toughies. If it's God's choice, and if as far as we can tell, there are some people who reject salvation and say, not for me, does that mean that God chooses some people to be saved and not others? Because if we go too hardcore on this idea that it's all about election and it's all about God's choice, then that must mean that people who reject Jesus, that was God's choice too. So you start to see some of the limitations of this as a truth. It doesn't limit God's power to save, but it starts limiting God's love to save if that's all that you take. Um, does that mean that our own actions and choices are irrelevant? Because surely if, if it's God's initiative to save, if it's God's decision to save, if it's all set in place before the beginning of creation, if it's all done on the cross, then my actions, my choices, in fact, whether I ever even choose to accept Jesus or not, that would be kind of irrelevant, wouldn't it? And in what the Bible teaches, it doesn't feel like our response is irrelevant. 
And in pretty much what all of the groups said to a greater or lesser degree, none of us feel it's irrelevant either. And I think the witness of the Spirit of God is within us. So again, this is absolutely true. But if that's the only truth we bring along, it starts to raise some difficult questions and it starts, it starts to contradict other things that the Bible says that are really important. And if it's all down to God and it depends on me not at all, if I contribute nothing to it, does that mean that I can live however I want, I can do whatever I like, and I can still be saved? And that's a really interesting question. And it's one that the Bible grapples with repeatedly. And in fact, you've got Paul writing here in Romans 6, and he asks the same question. He says this, shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? In other words, the more I do wrong, the more God's got to save me from, therefore, the bigger God's salvation is. And surely if salvation's bigger and better, that's an even better thing, isn't it? So that means I could do whatever I like. I can carry on sinning because all it means is that more of the finished work of Jesus is appropriated on my behalf. So I can do whatever I like. And how does Paul respond to that rhetorical question? He says, certainly not. That's not how it works, guys. How can we who died to sin, and we got that clear picture of, you know, dying to the power of sin when we looked at, you know, what is salvation? How, if we've died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? There's a contradiction here. That cannot possibly be right. And whilst salvation is ultimately Jesus' work on the cross and we don't add anything to it, one of the tests of has that actually happened in your life, is that a thing yet, is that we will have died to sin, and if we've, if, we haven't died to, if we've died to sin, we won't be living in it any longer. And we'll come back to the it all being worked out through your life and it being a gradual process. But there's a real sense there that it may not be dependent on our actions, but our actions absolutely will bear witness or not to the degree to which God's salvation has really happened and is really at work and is really working change within our lives. So fantastic truth to hold on to. It is God's initiative. Jesus has done it all on the cross. There's nothing we can add and there's nothing we need to add, which the more you think about it is a really good thing. So that's the truth and it's nothing but the truth. It may not be the whole truth. The truth may be even bigger than this. So are we saved at the moment of decision? When 10-year-old Philip in 1977 did his little prayer and there was something involving red and white roses and you, took, you got rid of the red one and took the white one to symbolize Jesus giving away your sin and taking Jesus' righteousness. I do remember it. Um, was that something fundamental in the cosmic journey of Phil Anderson's destiny? And if you can identify a similar date to that, did something fundamental to your journey happen at that point? And so it emphasizes our decision. It emphasizes the act of repenting of our sins and believing in Jesus. And you don't have to read the Bible very far to know that the Bible repeatedly says that those things are important and that those things are key to salvation. So there's a key truth in there, isn't there? Isn't there? And we'll come to some of the actual verses on this a bit later. But the key truth is this, that salvation requires belief and it requires a decision from us to follow Christ. And how can it also be true that it's completely God's initiative and yet require a decision of our created free will? It's a paradox. It's a bigger truth than fits neatly into a box. But it is very clear that the first slide is true from the Bible and it is very clear that this slide is true from the Bible. 
And that raises some different questions, doesn't it? It asks us this. So if our decision is one of the keys in all of this, is our decision is hugely important, does that mean that it's all down to me? Does that mean that I've made a really important, meaningful contribution to my own salvation? And if so, does that kind of rob the cross of some of its importance? Probably not. I think it's probably both and rather than either or, but it's a valid question, isn't it? And then, am I saved because I was once wise enough or smart enough to make that decision to follow Jesus? Do I deserve some credit for that? Yet it seems it can't happen without that, but it also seems that all the credit goes down to Jesus. So there's a tension there, isn't there? And what about those who were, who were never offered that choice? If no one ever explained to you or to someone sufficiently that you could make an informed decision to believe in Jesus and to follow him, does that mean that you can never be saved? And if it's true, would that be right of a just God who always acts fairly? And that, again, is kind of a whole other subject. The Bible does say that even those who have never been told can see enough in the creation that God has given them both the creation beyond themselves, the fingerprints of God seen through all of the goodness of creation, and creation within themselves, the moral, conscious that re- moral conscience that reflects the very nature of God, which he has breathed into every human being, into every human spirit. Um, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, Abraham didn't know about Jesus, right? He trusted, he exercised faith, and that faith was credited to him as righteousness. So huge subject, and it's a rabbit hole we could go down, but you could say Abraham was never offered the choice to follow Jesus. And yet still, the faith that he had from looking up in the stars in the sky, from the tiny bits of revelation, the three or four times in his life he felt he heard something clearly from God, that was enough. So good questions. But nonetheless, there is a key truth here. Salvation involves a decision from us to follow Jesus. And yes, God's will is all-prevailing, but part of God's all-prevailing will has been to give us freedom of choice in the image of God to be morally independent beings. And once our freedom of choice is part of God's created will for humanity, that means that God has not become constrained. He has chosen to create, to constrain himself by the freedom he has given to his own creation. Now, that's an incredibly complex picture. It makes quantum mechanics look simple. But nonetheless, that, that's what God's done. So is it all God's decision or is it all our choice? It is absolutely both. They are both true. And are we saved as a daily process? So 1977, I made a decision to follow Jesus. What about 1978? What about 1998? What about 2018? What about 2038? What about until I die or until Jesus returns, whichever comes first? So this emphasizes not a moment, not the moment of the cross and not the moment of decision either. This emphasizes a series of decisions either to live into our salvation, to actively choose to continue to receive it day by day, or to live out our salvation, like it said in there, to to live a life which expresses the reality of what God has done within us. It's a series of decisions. There is no one point. And there's a key truth in there too, isn't there? And the key truth is that salvation is a process. It's a process which is going to last the whole of our lives, and ultimately it will not be complete until the return of Jesus. There is an aspect of salvation that means salvation from physical illness. And we saw that earlier. 
But actually, not everybody I know who has physical illness has been healed from it yet. And I've known people who've died still in physical illness. And ultimately, we all die something, right? You don't die of good health. So, and yet, we have this promise held out before us of God's kingdom in which there is no sickness and there is no suffering and there are no tears and there is no death. So there's this contradiction between the fullness of the picture of salvation that we're given and the reality that we experience day to day. And yet we do see God breaking through into the moment. We do see miraculous healings. We do see God delivering people out of terrible situations. We do see lives being turned around. We do see brokenness being restored. We do see all of these things. And so there is a daily process of salvation breaking in and being worked out and happening. And it's not a process that happens to us. It's a process that we actively participate in by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God living within us. So there's a wonderful truth there that salvation isn't just a moment in time and it isn't just pie in the sky when you die. Those things would absolutely be enough, but it's even more than that. The Bible talks about the first fruits. In fact, we saw that in one of the previous scriptures. And it talks about the Holy Spirit as a down payment guaranteeing our future inheritance. We may not get all of it until Jesus returns and God restores all things, but we absolutely do get some of it now. In fact, from where I stand, it feels like we get quite a lot of it now. So salvation is happening and is continuing to happen. And what we see is evidence, glory changing into glory, more and more of that which will ultimately completely fill the earth and completely fill every life. And that's a fantastic truth. And it's as true as all the other truths that we've been looking at. And that doesn't mean that what's true for me is true for me and what's true for you is true for you. It means that God's truth is bigger than the simple human mind you can get around. And there are multiple truths in Jesus. And of course, there are complete untruths out there as well. Not everything is true just because someone thinks it is. But God's truth is bigger than our ability to conceive it. And it contains all of these strands. And even this truth has generates some questions. Does it mean I'm not fully saved? Because that process isn't going to be complete till after I die. And does that mean I'm only kind of partially saved now? well, I will be more saved tomorrow than I was today. And yet I'm already as fully saved as I'm ever going to be because Jesus has done it all on the cross and there's nothing further can be added. Both are true. Deal with it. Um, is salvation dependent on a life of good works? Does that mean that unless I actively participate in this process and work really hard to try and be more saved tomorrow than I was today and more saved Thursday fortnight than I was tomorrow, kind of salvation isn't happening. What happens if you go backwards? Um, again, Jesus' work on the cross means there's nothing more than I can add. God's Holy Spirit living in my life means that there is an expectation that God will work this in me and through me day by day, evermore each day, glory changing into glory. So there's nothing that I can add, but God will add more day by day. It is both an event and a process. Just like, if you like physics, an electron is both a wave and a particle. How can it be both? Deal with it. God made it that way. Um, this is as big and complex as that. And if it was any less, God would be less than God. Because that's how big and complex God is. All this beauty resides within the complexity of God's nature. And yet he reveals it in ways that are simple enough for understand. Isn't it amazing? And somebody asked this question, can I lose my salvation if I mess it up? If I don't participate in this process, if I trip over on the journey. Roger made a really good point last time when he was talking about some of the quite 
you know, hot questions that come about how, how do we live as church? How do we live as God's people? And one of the points he made was this. You start from the fundamental truths of the scripture and then you work forward to the specific circumstances that you're trying to apply those truths to. It doesn't work nearly so well when you work backwards. If you take the exception and try and work out the rule from it, you get a rubbish rule. If you take the rule and try, apply, try to apply it to the exception, you are grappling with the real complexities of morality and human existence. And it appears that the fundamental truth is what Jesus says in John 10, 28, and in loads of scriptures like it, right throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus says here, he's talking about his disciples, he's talking about their salvation, and he says this, no one will snatch them out of my hand. If Jesus has saved you, he is powerful enough to hold on to what he's saved. If Jesus is the good shepherd, there is no lion or bear or other predatory creatures are also available that is going to be able to snatch you away from Jesus' hand. So ultimately, your salvation is secure, not because you're not going to mess up. Spoiler alert, you probably are, if you haven't already. Um, but because Jesus is capable of keeping you. He is capable of holding you. Talks about as being hidden in the palm of his hand. And that is both tender and incredibly powerful. Nothing can snatch us away. And somebody is going to quote to me, what about that scripture that says um, there is such a thing as the unforgivable sin? And I'm not saying you should pray to people for being forgiven from that because, you know, clearly they can't be forgiven from that one. The Bible doesn't even tell us what that sin is. We know it's a sin against the Holy Spirit. So it's something to do with the Spirit of God. And somebody very wise many years ago said this to me about that scripture. They said, if you're worrying that that might be you, it's not. For the simple reason that if your conscience is still remotely interested in the idea of holding on to your salvation, if you are in any way worried that something in you desperately wants to be going on with God and you're worried that you might have messed that up, then whatever this unforgivable sin may or may not have been, that does not apply to you. So if you're sitting here and you're remotely interested in listening to this talk and you're not just rejecting it and walking out the door in a huff, I can already tell you that that doesn't apply to you. Um, maybe it's those who've been filled with the Spirit, they have known God as intimately as it's possible to know him and have chosen to reject that. Is that even possible? How does that apply to the first truth and the second truth? Look, actually, it is worth grappling with these questions. It is worth engaging with it because when we grapple with them in all seriousness, we learn more of the greatness and the love and the beauty and the sheer vastness of God's plan for salvation. But let's start with the simple truths. If you're in Jesus' hand, no one can snatch you out. So it's not by snatching and it's not by your own blundering. Some, whatever that scripture means, it means something else to that. And Jesus is more than capable of holding on to you. And that's the truth to get hold of too. We enter the end of the questions, don't worry. And we've only got what? Three minutes left. So is this the final question? I think it might be. I'm trying to remember the talk. Um, okay, real practical stuff now. If that's what is salvation, and if that's when is salvation, how are we actually saved? What's the actual process? How does it actually happen? So back into little groups, a couple of minutes. What are the things that have to be done in your life for salvation to be a reality? How does this thing happen?
I see these conversations get longer and more profound each time we do this because people are starting to think about more stuff. But let's start with the group at the back there. What do you reckon? How are we saved practically? What has to happen? Uh huh. Giving our lives to Christ. Giving and living. You sound like you've got a sermon right there. <laughs> there you go. It just comes out of you, doesn't it? It's the gift of God. It just won't stop bubbling. Right. <laughs> How about the group at the front here? So it's the Leona Lewis approach to redemption. It's all in a moment like this. And um, you, you've got that, that crying out from within us, and somehow it connects to the grace of God. And that's, that's the moment. Yeah, and the breadth of those truths really opens that up to both being true. So that moment is really important, that moment, you know, the hour I first believed. Um, but actually water baptism is clearly referred to in scriptures as being effective in salvation. So that absolutely has a place too. How about this, this group at the front? So conviction, conviction of the reality of your own sin and conviction of the reality of who Jesus was. I really am a sinner. Jesus really is my saviour. That, that conviction and that being an inner thing that you can't fake, you've either got that or you haven't. Group at the back there. That's a really good question in and of itself, isn't it? Is it about the mechanics of what we do or is it about what God... So I'm repeating for the tape a little bit. We are saved by grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. <laughs> Ron Canoli is brilliant on that. He says, I used to go to church and hear that and um, I wanted to know more and I'd say... Mama, Mama, am I a wretch? And are you a wretch? And he, she'd say, shut up and sing, boy. <laughs> <laughs> How are we saved? Here's a few scriptures on it. Um, John 5, Jesus. Those who listen to my message and believe in God, who sent me, have eternal life. We've seen that eternal life, consequences of sin, fundamental salvation. So Jesus says it's about hearing the message and believing it. Um, this is Paul, isn't it? Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So believe, believe in the Lord Jesus. And then uh, Romans 10, Romans talks a lot about the theology of salvation. There's a real thread right the way through that. I could have just quoted, done the whole of this from Romans almost. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we've talked a little bit, some of you in your groups have come up with what you believe in your heart matters hugely. What you say with your mouth can matter too. And that brings together this idea of confession and of belief. And then you've got when the crowd asked Peter, and you know, this whole series is being tied back to Acts 2.42, the apostles' teaching. What did the early church really believe? And this is only four verses away from that. And this is Peter standing up before the crowd. And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So repent, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter preaches to the crowd on Pentecost Day that they must do in order to be saved. So you can see some of the components in there. You've got repent and believe. It's really important. So this moment of decision to follow Jesus, and all you can really do after reading the scriptures is affirm that that is definitely something that is there. It is definitely something that we need to repent, recognize that we are sinners. We need to believe that Jesus is our savior. We need to believe in what he has done for us. That act of you know, confessing that we are sinners, Jesus is our savior, we need him, is hugely important here. 
And repenting means turning away from our old life and resolving to live a new one. So it's more than an intellectual assent to, I believe that this is 85% probability to be true. This, this is, I'm going to bet my life on this. Imperfectly, and I'll probably get it wrong, but that's where I'm going. I will turn away from my old life and I will resolve to live a new one. To believe is more than intellectual acceptance. It involves exercising saving faith. It's choosing not to intellectually accept it, but choosing to trust in God that this is going to lead to salvation in my life. And that has to be done by faith, doesn't it? How, how do we do that practically? And yeah, people have talked about, for some people, it's a journey of learning and responding, and there might be many stages. If it was going to be down to a single act, then some of you will have heard an idea of a, a sinner's prayer, but basically saying this stuff out, out loud and it, it's really simple. Um, and all you're doing in choosing to pray a prayer is marking a moment and marking the realization that God has brought to you in your heart. I think it was mentioned earlier. What you say out loud is only meaningful if it reflects something that's happened in your heart. It's, it's a true confession by faith. So praying out loud and, you know, one of those scriptures talked about confess with your mouth. I don't think that's unimportant. I think the stuff that we say kind of has more power in our lives than the stuff that we think the bible says that the tongue is like a rudder it steers the whole ship um and this 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 repenting and believing it's often identified with being saved from the consequences of sin you know that moment that we accept that jesus death on the cross is actually for us and um yeah i love this quote partly because of the quote and partly because of the name um that you know, it, it's from the, the hymn to God be the glory. And one of the verses says this, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. Praise the Lord. Uh, let the earth hear his voice. Um, and it's by a hymn writer called Fanny Crosby, which is brilliant too. Um, but yeah, that moment of belief, no matter who you are and no matter what you've done, the pardon from Jesus is received. It wasn't that it wasn't there already. Jesus had done it on the cross. But there is a moment of receiving it into your life that genuinely, if you look at what the scripture says, really seems to matter. Repent and be baptized. The words, you could argue, come from us. That belief is something that happens within our heart. That confession out of our mouth is something we choose to do or not. In salvation, we can, in baptism, we can choose to be baptized, but actually we can't make anything spiritual happen. If it wasn't for the work of God in that moment, all that happened is you get wet. So the Bible, um, in, in the church, we call it a means of grace. In other words, it's something that you do that opens your life to God's grace and God's power. You have to make the act of doing, you have to choose to be baptized, but unless God's grace and power come in that moment nothing actually happens and we call it a sacrament and there's other ones in the bible and in in church practice so we've got the um the last supper we've got holy communion we've got you know sharing bread and wine that's seen as a sacrament it seems that something of the power of god comes through that that is more than just the act it is an act of remembering but it's more than that something of the actual power of god comes through that confession can be like that baptism is definitely like that there is something more than just our action it's not just symbolic 
there is something of the real power of God is released through these things. And what a power. To be baptised means to really become part of Jesus' death and resurrection, which we have seen are the absolute key to salvation. That's where it all comes from, ultimately. And when we go down into that water, and it's symbolised best if you go down right under into an actual tub or tank or whatever it is, um, when you go down, it symbolises going down into the grave with Jesus and dying with him. And when you get whooshed back out again, it symbolises being raised to new life, being resurrected with him. And it also symbolises in the process being washed clean with water, being washed clean of your sin, the past being dealt with and being given a fresh start and a new start. And it is symbolic, but it's more than symbolic. The power of God is at work through these things. What's the practical action you can take? Get baptised if you haven't already done that. It can be in church, it can be in a river, it can be in a sea, it can be in a bathtub if that's all you've got handy. Actually, it's doing it by faith and believing that as you do your bit, God will do the important bit, which is his power breaking through into that. And we often identify that with being saved from the power of sin, don't we? Just as like that moment of confession receives the power of the cross and secures eternal life, the moment of being washed clean breaks the power of sin in our lives. And of, of course, they all relate to all of it. You can't break them out and say this does this and that does that. But it's so powerfully symbolic of the power of sin being removed by death, raised to a new life in freedom and washed clean of the consequences. Um, Lisa Borden, she's a lady who um, is involved in the 24-7 prayer movement, worked in Tanzania for many, many years as a sort of missionary and church planter. And they dealt with a lot of people who'd been up to their necks in the occult, into dark magic and evil practices and all those kind of things. And she talked about three levels of involvement that, you know, unconscious agreement where actually you can just confess it and get rid of it, conscious agreement that you needed deliverance from, and blood covenant where you had actually gone deeply into this. And she said, if someone's made a covenant with evil, there is no way out. Covenants are for life. The only way out of it is for them to die. And actually the only way they can die without physically dying is in baptism. They've got to be die with Jesus and be raised to new life. So her line was this, if anybody's entered into a covenant, and she meant with the occult, the only way they can escape it is to die through baptism. So she said, we just, you know, forget praying for them. We just have to get them to the pool as quickly as we can, because that's the only way Jesus is going to set them free. They've got to die, and short of physical death, this is the only way you're going to die. You're only going to die twice in your life, once when you physically die, and once when you identify with Jesus' death and resurrection through the waters of baptism. So... Yeah, it's powerful and it breaks the powers of sin. Repent and be baptised and, and receive the Holy Spirit, Peter said. So there is a moment when we receive the Holy Spirit and that is powerful and effective for our salvation because it gives us the power to live that new life in Jesus Christ, to live out that journey that we talked about as being one of the dimensions of the truth of what it means to be saved. There's that uh, verse in Ephesians there. When you believed and this is talking about that moment of belief, isn't it? You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, um, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. So the Spirit comes as like a seal, and it means like a royal seal that proves the letter really is from royalty, from God the King in this case. And it's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. How do we know that all this future stuff, this transformation and this restoration of all things is actually going to happen? How do we know that that's for real? 
And the answer is there is a seal that guarantees our inheritance. We've got the down payment and it's the Holy Spirit. To receive the Holy Spirit is to have the very presence of God come and live within us, filling our lives with his fruits and with his gifts. And we talked a lot about that last year, didn't we? The fruit and gifts of the Holy Spirit. So I'm not going to recap all of that stuff, save to say when the Spirit lives within us, these things all start to merge out of us. Sometimes as fruit, you know, pop joy, pop peace, pop patience like that. Things that we couldn't make happen in our lives. And sometimes as gifts, you know, pop prophecy and pop uh, pastoral gifting and pop administration and, you know, things that you know the difference when somebody's moving in the best of their own ability and when somebody's moving in a whole different dimension that's just coming from the power of God at work in their lives. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. How do you receive this Holy Spirit practically? Well, the Bible tells us, you know, you can do this. This is something that's for everybody. It's not a special gift that comes to some and not others. Um, individual gifts come to some and not others, but receiving the gifts of the Holy Spirit in some form, in some way, is for all believers. And we receive the Spirit by prayer and or by laying on of hands. And, you know, all the truths and all of these means all go together. But you can see how this is particularly powerful in being saved from the ongoing effects of sin as the Holy Spirit starts to reveal the fruits of the Spirit in our lives, which are usually the exact opposite, the exact antithesis of living a life of sin, starts to reveal the the gifts that he gives in our lives, which are powerful to breaking the power of sin individually and communally. This is a quote from Corrie ten Boom, which seemed to sum it up for me. Trying to do the Lord's work in your own strength is the most confusing, exhausting, and tedious of all work. And who's ever found trying to work in the church confusing, exhausting, or tedious? And the reason is, according to Corrie, that you were trying to do it in your own strength. But when you are filled with the Holy Spirit then the ministry of Jesus just flows out of you. If it fills in, it will flow out. I love that picture in, uh, of the temple. You know, it's in Revelation and it's in Ezekiel of water flowing out from the temple. And in Jesus' day, the temple was a physical place. What's the temple now? We are. Because God's presence comes to dwell, not in a building, but in us by his Holy Spirit. And that means this living water that brings life and transformation and fruit and healing and freshness it's flowing out of the temple. Where's the temple? It's in you because God comes to dwell by his Holy Spirit. So all that stuff is going to happen through us and in us. The ministry of Jesus just flows out of you. Repent and be baptized and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And those are, that's the practical. of That's what salvation looks like when it's claimed in our lives. A quick question, does the order really matter? Um, the, the, there's a Acts 10, 44. The first Gentile believers, as far as we can tell, got filled with the Holy Spirit, then got baptized, and then probably realized that meant they'd repented. Um, order didn't seem quite right, did it? And Peter starts preaching, and they didn't even have a chance to respond out loud. This happens halfway through the sermon. Um, and then they get baptized. So it seems to happen for them in completely the wrong order, doesn't it? There may have been a special reason for that. Do you think Peter would ever have baptized a Gentile if God hadn't have filled with them with the Holy Spirit first? So maybe there was a special case to that. But nonetheless, didn't happen in the right order there. Um, in Corinth, there seemed to be disciples, and they were called disciples, so they were followers of Jesus for sure. Um, they'd undergone John's baptism, so they'd repented, but no sign of a Holy Spirit. And they had to be baptized in the name of Jesus before they received the Holy Spirit. So that almost seems like unless stuff happened, unless you had all three, 
believing and following baptism in the name of Jesus, you weren't going to get filled with the Holy Spirit. So that seems to talk about the right order. And then what about churches that baptize babies? They're saying you can baptize someone. Then at a later stage, you can, they can have a, um, a confirmation service and they can kind of declare their faith for themselves. And hopefully somewhere along the journey, the Holy Spirit might show up. So is that right or is that wrong? Well, surely if baptism is a sacrament, it's mostly about what God does, not about what we do. Therefore, you don't require a certain level of intellectual competence in order to receive the benefits of a sacrament. But can you receive it by faith if you don't? And look, I don't think some of these people aren't saved because they got baptized as babies, all right? And the order that is preached by Peter in Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit, that probably makes sense. And that probably represents God's normal plan for this kind of thing. And it makes sense to us. You repent and it's a moment of belief. It's a moment of confession. It's a moment of choice. You respond to that by submitting to the sacrament of baptism. And in that moment, God does through baptism what we cannot do. It's not down to us. And somewhere in that process, God fills us with his Holy Spirit. But at the same time, God is sovereign. And his work of salvation in any person's life is a living relationship, not a formula and not a set of boxes that have to be ticked. So if God in Acts chapter 10 is chilled enough that he can do it in the wrong order, then maybe we need to be a bit less judgmental about that as well. But at the same time, if you want to try and explain it to somebody, I think Peter's explanation in Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit, is probably the best explanation. That's why it's in the Bible. And it's probably the way that people are going to comprehend it and understand it. So that's what I tell people you have to do. But you've got to be humble enough to recognize that God makes the rules and he's already proved that he's willing to bend them because it's right there in scripture. How can I know that I'm saved? I'm not going to do this in little groups because we're already over time and I want to finish. Um, this is a really hard one, isn't it? Because, and it especially is often true of young people and young adults, but it can be true of all of us at any time. But right, just stick your hand up. Have you ever been through a stage in your life, um, if you're a Christian, where you thought, how do I know I'm saved? Do I know whether I'm saved? Am I really saved? Has anyone ever experienced that? Quite a few of us have. So this is not an idle question, is it? This question matters. Um, and that's a feeling, isn't it? It's am I sure? So there are a number of ways in which we can know that we are saved. And that knowledge is important because it represents faith almost. And faith is one of the keys that unlocks the reality of this in our lives. So first of all, we can know because we've done what the Bible says. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, be baptized. If you do those things, God's promised that his salvation is for you. And those promises of God don't depend on feelings. They depend on God's promise and your response, which is probably a gift of God, faith that God's re releasing in your life anyway. So if you've done what the Bible says, if you confessed with your mouth, believed in your heart, been baptized, according to the Bible, you have received the salvation of Jesus. The work that was on the cross is for you and for you for all eternity. And that depends on action. It does not depend on whether you feel it or not. So there's something really important there. Um, the same passage, Hebrews, the one that we, we, we mentioned with Abraham earlier. Um, to have faith is to be sure of the things that we hope for. 
And if salvation is something that you hope for in your life, the certainty comes by faith. And what does, Bible, what does the Bible say faith is? It says it's a gift, a gift of God. So we receive by faith, not by feelings. Faith is a different faculty to emotion. They can be closely related because they both feel like they come out of your feeler, not your thinker. But nonetheless, faith is a different faculty to emotion. It's a different faculty to feelings. And we need to learn to exercise our faith muscle um, a little bit more. And actually, we can know by faith that we are saved, even when we don't feel by emotion that we are saved. It can be, I'm in torment about this, but somewhere deep within me, I know that I know that I know that God will never leave me nor forsake me. And the, those scriptures actually talked about the Holy Spirit being evidence, didn't they? Evidence in our lives that God has saved us. Repent and be baptized and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So if you can recognize the fruits of the Holy Spirit starting to be manifest in your life, if you can see the gifts of the Holy Spirit at work in your life, that is evidence of salvation because you have that seal guaranteeing your inheritance. You have the very presence of God dwelling within you. The temple's being filled up and the water's starting to overflow and flow out. So you can recognize all of that stuff going on. So if you can see the fruits and gifts of the Spirit starting to be at work in your life, and ask someone else if they can see the fruits of the Spirit of God. Ask somebody who is discerning, who has the Spirit. The Bible says that discerning spirits is another gift of the Holy Spirit. So ask somebody who you believe can move in that, and they will discern for you that the, the, the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. And your own emotions will try and tell you it's not happening. And the devil will desperately try and tell you it's not happening. But the gift of discerning of spirits will tell you here, here, and here, the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. And for some of the more obvious gifts, it's kind of easy. You know, if you're um, overflowing and speaking in tongues and you're laying hands on people and they're getting healed, actually people who do that stuff can be conflicted and they can fall. We've all seen it. But nonetheless, the evidence is rather obvious. When you're seeing fruit growing in somebody's life and you're questioning, well, would they have done that anyway? Um, it can be a bit harder, but actually it is possible to discern those things and it is possible to see evidence of salvation through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so far, I have deliberately de-emphasized feelings. The actions that you take out of obedience to God's word in order to receive salvation, they do not depend on feelings. The faith that you exercise is a different faculty to feeling and emotion. And the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life can be seen objectively. It does not depend on feelings. But that doesn't mean feelings are, have, no, have no place. If God hadn't meant us to have feelings, he wouldn't have, make, wouldn't have created them. If God had not meant us to be emotional people, he wouldn't have given us emotions. And we would not be complete and whole as beautiful human beings created in the image of God if we were not created with a deep and rich emotional side and with a deep and rich and complex set of feelings. So feelings matter for sure. They're not everything, but they are something. So what about if you just feel, yeah, I can see all of that, but I just want to know it. I just want to feel it. I think there is a real evidence in God's word and there is a real evidence throughout the history of God's people that God wants you to know that sense of confidence God wants you to know that sense of feeling it. Um, in the evangelical revivals of the 18th, 19th centuries, it was frequently called assurance. How can I know that I'm saved? How can I have that sense of assurance? There's a brilliant exchange comes from the life of John Wesley, almost certainly the greatest evangelist this nation has ever seen. Um, 1736, he had this conversation. He records it in his diary. 
and somebody was asking him some unexpected questions about um, his, his own faith, which as a, he was already a church minister. He didn't expect to be quizzed about his own faith. And they said to him, do you know Jesus Christ? And Wesley says, I know he is the savior of the world. And Spangenberg said, true, but do you know that he has saved you? And Wesley says, I hope that he has died to save me. Not quite, the same, not quite answering the question, is he? Um, and he writes in his private journal, I fear that they were vain words. He knew that he wasn't feeling it. He could explain objectively, and he could explain that he'd taken the right actions. He could explain that he was saved, but he wasn't feeling it. And that lack of emotional connection with what God has done was absolutely inhibiting him in his life and ministry. Two years later, he went to a meeting in a place called Aldersgrate Street in London um, in desperation, pretty much. His ministry in America had been a failure. He'd returned home in disgrace. And he said this, about a quarter before nine, while he, the preacher, was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did trust in Christ, Christ alone, for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And shortly after that, this broken, failed excuse for a preacher became the most powerful preacher of the gospel this nation has ever known. Hundreds of thousands of people came to faith purely through his ministry. He got into all kinds of chaos and trouble, and millions went on through the next generation of that to be saved. So are emotions necessary? No, they are not. Do emotions matter? Yes, or God wouldn't have given them to you. And therefore, it is right and okay to ask for assurance. It is also right and okay to recognize that you don't need it. But God doesn't mind you asking. He delights to give good gifts to his children. And surely that certainty of salvation is a good gift. Blessed assurance, purchase divine, praising my saviour all of the time. That's an old hymn from this era. Because people wanted that assurance and they knew how precious a gift it was. So I'm going to end with an invitation. We may or may not time, have time to sort of work through it, but hey, we've overrun it before. Um, we talked about the actions, the specifics to take. If you've never prayed out loud to declare your belief in Jesus and you're ready to, if it's there in your heart, just do it. You can do it today. You can grab one of the leaders and get them to pray it with you. I'm going to leave the prayer on at the end just in case. Um, if you've not yet been baptized in water, having seen and heard how powerful it is to the working out of salvation in our lives, ask one of the leaders and arrange to be baptized. It's a simple step of obedience to God's word, but it's more than that. We do something and God does a a hundredfold more as his power is released through the sacrament of baptism. If you're not confident that you've received the Holy Spirit, ask somebody to pray and lay hands on you to receive it. I believe that God has released the Spirit in everybody who's had received salvation, but you kind of know if there's more, there's something in there crying out to you. And if that's you today, it's not supposed to be complicated. We can pray that the Spirit will break through in your life. And if you just want to feel it more, if you want to feel that sense of assurance regarding your salvation, even if you accept that all of these things have been done and happening, it's okay to ask. It's also great to have faith. You know, Jesus says, blessed are you who have seen, blessed are those who will believe who have never seen. Um, sometimes 
you know, there's a faith in the wilderness that's even more precious, but it's also okay to ask. God did not create our feelings and emotions in order to frustrate them. So ask for prayer that you will receive that blessed assurance. It's okay to ask. That is barely scratching the surface. It kind of feels like salvation 101, and Roger probably would have given you 202. Um, But nonetheless, that moment of receiving it, it can be really as simple as that. That's the prayer of Billy Graham, one of the the major evangelists in the English-speaking world of the 20th century, used. It's not complicated, is it? God is eager to save, and he's already done it already on the cross. But that moment of receiving is an important part of his plan and purpose for our lives too. So if anybody wants to pray that or pray that again, those words are there. But other than that, I'm just going to finish by praying. Lord Jesus, your plan for salvation from all time and all to, to all time, from the beginning to the center, which is Christ, to the very end, is amazing. And we just bow in awe afresh at that little glimpse of the beauty of your plan for salvation in our lives, in every lives, and in all of creation that we have come to afresh through your word today. Father, where you want to speak that more deeply into us, I just pray for those seeds of faith and of your word right now, that they'd find the groove between the paving stones, that they would find good soil in places they perhaps haven't found it before in my life and in each of our lives, and would grow something beautiful and fruitful a hundred times more than what these little words have been able to sow in today. And Lord, where you're prompting us to take any of these steps anew or afresh or for the first time, I pray that word of conviction would come and that your plan of salvation would bring forth our response of salvation, would bring forth your continuing process of salvation in each of our lives and in more and more of the lives that we touch. To the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Let's thank Phil with a round of applause. Thank you, Phil.